As physicians in the U.S., many of our patients will use some form of Medicare or Medicaid. We believe that medical students and residents should have a base understanding of what each of these are before they enter the workforce. In this episode, we hope to give you an introduction to both Medicare and Medicaid and discuss how it may impact you as a physician. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Welcome back to Leading the Rounds. I'm Peter here with my co-host Caleb, and we're here on our first episode of Healthcare 101. Just to remind you guys, the goal of Healthcare 101 is to improve our own health systems literacy. This is a challenge for us and requires us to do a good deal of reading beforehand, and it'll help our understanding of the healthcare system grow. Um, We also want to provide you guys with a base of knowledge on current health topics, so this will be an evolving part of our podcast as the current healthcare systems landscape changes. We'll try to discuss new cutting edge topics in the future. And we'd also like to provide you and ourselves with an introduction to the business of medicine, as this is a hot topic and something that medical schools don't typically teach us. Today we're talking about Medicare and Medicaid, how it started, why it's important. So let's just jump right into it. Caleb, what is Medicare? So Medicare was created in 1965 by President Lyndon B. Johnson. There was some work on it by the previous presidents, a couple of them, but it wasn't fully established until 1965. And what Medicare is specifically, it is health insurance paid for the government for the most part for people who are over 65 years old. And it also covers uh, some disabilities such as kidney failure and ALS specifically. That's what most people know about Medicare. What most people don't know is that there's actually four different parts of Medicare. And it's broken down into part A, B, C, and D. Initially... There was just Part A and B when Medicare was first created, and then it was expanded in 1997 to include a few more things for patients over 65 and those other disabled groups. The first couple parts that were introduced, Part A and B, were first in 1965, and Part A covers hospital and acute care, and patients still have to pay deductibles up to $1,000. And this is paid for by our taxes throughout life. So if somebody who's over 65 or has kidney failure or ALS goes to the hospital for an emergency, this is what allows them to pay for those services. One thing we wanted to talk about when we're introducing these different parts as well is to define a few terms that are often included when people discuss um, paying for health care and also health insurance. And so you have terms like deductible, copay, premium. And first, when growing up and entering the field of medicine, these terms are thrown around a lot, and we just want to make sure everybody who's listening understands what each of those means. And so for the deductible, for example, that we see in Part A of Medicare, that's the amount, of per- the amount a person has to pay before their health care kicks in. So for example, if you visit a physician or have to go to the hospital at the start of a year, usually these start every January, and you have to pay a certain amount of that money before 
your healthcare kicks in and pays for the rest. So this is kind of your classic insurance model where you take some of the risk by having to pay that $1,000 that we see in Medicare Part A. But then if there's extreme damage or an extreme emergency where you have to pay more than that, that's when your insurance kicks in and insurance pays the rest. There's a few other terms such as copay and premium that we also want to mention as well. So your copay is what you have to pay every time you use the service. So for example, if you go to the physician or the hospital, uh, most people have a copay, whether it's $25 or $50. So every time you visit the clinic or use the service of medic medicine, you're going to pay that $20 or $25 um, for that service. And then insurance will um, pick up the rest uh, after your deductible is met. And then the last term we wanted to define was a premium. And so this is what you're actually paying for your insurance uh, throughout the year. So each month you're going to pay your healthcare premium. And for Medicare, most of the time that's paid for by the government. If you have private insurance, this premium is what you would pay each month so that you have coverage in case an emergency does happen. So those are a few of the terms we wanted you guys to have a good understanding of before we continue our discussion on Medicare and Medicaid. So like we said, Part A covers hospitals and acute care. Part B is a little bit different, and that covers physician pay, surgeries, labs, and medical equipment. So when, you, when somebody who is over the age of 65 visits a hospital or a clinic, this is what's going to pay the doctor, this is what's going to pay the surgeon, those people who are drawing labs, any medical equipment that's needed. And this is not free for those over 65. So people do have to enroll in this, and their premium is around $100 a month with deductibles and copays. So this is not completely free for everybody over 65. There is some cost still involved. And so Part A and B of Medicare is what was initially passed in 1965. This was expanded afterwards by Part C, which is also called Medicare Advantage. So Medicare Advantage was added in 1977, and this is when the government or Medicare buys a policy that usually covers Part A and Part B, but they buy it through a private insurer. So this is slightly different because the government is buying you an insurance plan through a different insurer or different company. In this model or this choice, Medicare pays the premium, and usually this involves additional perks such as medications or discounts as well. And currently in the U.S., Medicare Part C or Medicare Advantage accounts for a third of the Medicare spending currently. So this is kind of a different model that was established in 1977 where the government buys health insurance through a private company and then you have your insurance through that private company. I think it'd be 1997. 1997, yep. What did I say, 37? <laughs> you, you said 1977. Okay. Yep, yep. 19, <laughs> 1997, uh, years later after original Medicare was established. And then Medicare Part D was added last, and that was added in 2003. And... This is only offered by private insurance companies, and this also includes drug coverage to Part A and B. And so initially, when Medicare was established, it covered hospital care, it covered physician pay and things 
within the hospital, but it didn't cover any medications that the patients would need until about 2003 when this was added additionally onto uh, Medicare as Part D. So Caleb, I know you, you, you I think you described Medicare very well, and um, even I, I think I have a clearer picture now of what Medicare really is. Uh, but you did mention in Part C that there is medication coverage and Part D covers drugs. So maybe you could help clarify for myself and our listeners what kind of medications are covered in Part C and what does Part D expand upon? So Part C, your Medicare Advantage, because you're buying a policy through a private insurer, the medications or what you, what other things you get under that plan will be based on the private insurer. So the government is buying it through a different insurer and they're determining what you're able to get. Part D is added by the government and it's offered through, so it's you're paying a private insurer directly instead of the government um, choosing the private insurer and then you getting the drugs from that insurer. So it's slightly different than Medicare Advantage. Gotcha. So the next thing we want to talk about is Medicaid and how Medicaid is different from Medicare and how it was developed and the people that it, it helps receive medical care. So Peter, give us a little bit of background on Medicaid. How is it different? Who does it cover? When was it established? And give us some history on it. So yeah, so briefly, Medicaid was also established and started to, be, started to become, it became law in 1965 by Lyndon B. Johnson as well. Um, and in bare bones terms, it is the health insurance is paid for by both the state and the federal government for those in poverty, those from a low socioeconomic background, or those who have been disabled. Because it is partially funded by the state, the requirements for being accepted are very much based on where the state that you live in. So for example, the poverty line, um, is very different in New York as compared to say Nebraska, um, as well as, you know, um, what minimum wages and 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 where you kind of fall socioeconomically. Um, the Affordable Care Act uh, worked to expand this to allow for anybody who's who's under the federal poverty level, poverty level um, to be able to qualify for coverage in Medicaid. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what Obama had expanded upon in uh, in Medicaid when he was in office. Um, and this is currently what, what people are trying to um, expand upon now. So the major, one, one of the current things happening is, is a lot of push to expand Medicaid and get more coverage this way. Um, you might know it as Medicare for all, but it's basically trying to expand both of these programs to help more people. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, it's not as, I think it's not as uh, detailed as as Medicare is, um, but it's, it's basically government-provided health insurance. And, and it's a very, it's a debated topic because there's a lot of pros and cons to, to having health insurance from the government. Um, based, it, it kind of determines what kind of drugs you can get, what procedures you can get, who you can see. Uh, so there's a lot of things that need to be done to move forward um, as, as a health system to cover more people and provide them better care. So. There's a lot of ideas for the future, and in, a, in one particular uh, cohort that's been affected by the current state of affairs with, with government-provided health insurance and, and competing with um, private health insurance 
is the lower middle class, or what Caleb recently told me is the messy middle. Um, so, I guess, Caleb, throwing it back to you, what are some of the current ideas out there of how we provide better care for this messy middle? Yeah, so, so what I mean by the messy middle, to give some background, is a lot of people don't necessarily qualify for Medicaid. So Medicaid gives coverage to those who are extremely um, in poverty and those below the poverty line and slightly above. But there's a group of people that's relatively large that falls above the poverty line and above the cutoff for Medicaid, but isn't able to pay for good quality health insurance. And I think health insurance and, and health emergencies is the biggest cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. And so a lot of people don't get Medicaid coverage, but they can't, they don't have the savings, they don't have good enough coverage to pay for a huge medical emergency. I also want to say that they don't have the income to pay for private health insurance sometimes. Right, and and if they do have private health insurance, they probably have the, the very minimum. And so if they do get stuck with a medical emergency they're going to have a lot of that cost still fall on them and they're going to go into debt because of that. And so there's, there's this dilemma of do we push Medicaid coverage higher and higher and expand it to those with uh, increased income or do we find other solutions to decrease cost of medicine or to find other ways to help the lower middle class or the messy middle pay for the health expenses that they need. And so I have a few ideas that, that I've come up with to start thinking about how we can pay for this group of people. And the number one idea, and this is well talked about, and, and although it's difficult, it's very important, is preventing disease before the population at risk gets the disease. And so one of my favorite quotes is from Ben Franklin, and it says, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of a cure. And so if we can find ways to increase prevention of disease, whether it's through public health measures or through increasing education on nutrition and and healthy living and things like that, there's a lot of disease in this population and the entire population that we can prevent and thus decreasing healthcare costs and healthcare expenses for a ton of people. I was just just gonna add on to this as the resident scientist of the two of us. even even coming up with new biological discoveries or um, a better understanding of how disease begins or progresses or who's really at risk is is another way to uh, I guess promote preventative measures because you know you don't you don't know what you don't know and if you know how to prevent something it's pretty easy to, to guide your patients and produce new educational tools so yeah so not only educating people about how to live healthier but learning who to target for specific education measures and if we can increase um, our science behind who's at risk we can target measures specifically towards the groups that were at risk and be really efficient with how we promote prevention in those groups definitely i think that's super important mm-hmm. and um just i wanted to also comment on uh promoting prevention as part of the value-based model of care, which is something we don't really have a lot of time to talk about in this episode. Um, but we, we should definitely do an episode in the future about a value-based model versus a fee-for-service model and the pros and cons and how it impacts the economy. Because it's, uh, it's an up-and-coming topic and a lot of people are trying to push the uh, health system towards a value-based model, which 
which in short, it, it, it encourages um, or it incentivizes physicians to, to uh, promote prevention over, over treatment. Yeah, and, and obviously we don't have a ton of time to dive into the whole topic, but can you just real quickly define each of those and what makes value-based different from fee-for-service? Which one are we currently using most of the time and how is the opposite one a little bit different? Yeah, so, so currently uh, we're in a very, we're in a, we're in a fee-for-service model where physicians don't get paid un- and the hospital doesn't get paid unless there's a procedure or a drug prescribed. Um, and that procedure can be anything from like an ECG or it can be a drug that, you know, your, your hospital is sponsored to, to use to treat patients with or, um, or surgery. It, 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 a, a, the, the, the definition of service is pretty broad, um, but the problem is you don't get paid to just see and talk to patients, which has historically been a very important part of the job and a, lot, a, lot, a big reason of why a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of undergraduate students and medical students are drawn to the profession. So in a value-based model, it still rewards you for doing this. Um, and I'm not super clear yet on, on like the details of it. So, you know, I'll brush up before we end up writing those notes and doing that episode, but it rewards physicians financially and hospitals financially in terms of the value of the care that they're giving, regardless of the services they're providing. And that could be, and, and that requires a lot of, I guess the one thing that does requires a lot of like a, an output metrics, like what your, what, where your population is, where it's going and how it's doing under your, your, your model to kind of, establish value yeah and it also kind of brings up direct primary care as well because it alters how physicians are being paid and so with fee-for-service you only get paid if you do something and treat something whereas value-based model really rewards and and direct primary care rewards keeping the patient healthy um, financially for the physician but then also we we all want to keep our patients healthy so so it aligns both financial goals for both parties but then also goals of quality of life and of care. And I think with direct primary care, for example, it's an it's the idea of paying the physician directly, whether it's monthly for the service, and thus you have better access to the physician and the physician has much less workload of patients because you don't have as much waste of money with insurance companies that are sucking the money away from the patient and the physician. So it brings the idea back to the physician-patient relationship being the center of the healthcare team and not all these other businesses and insurance companies getting in the way and them receiving all the money within within the system. And I think the other thing that both a value-based model and a direct physician model um, would address is also the shortage of primary care providers. A lot of this work has been um, kind of relegated to physician's assistants and there's been a big increase in, in medical students and, and uh, residents wanting to go into specialties that do services. Um, so it's left a shortage of primary care providers. And I, I couldn't tell you how it really has impacted care of patients or, or their, um, their in impression of the quality of the, the care that they're getting versus, you know, with a physician compared to a PA. Um, I'm not too abreast with those studies, but if you ask my dad, he thinks that PAs aren't doing as good of a job. But, you know, my dad's a physician, so he has very strong opinions. He's an old physician, so he has very, very strong opinions. Um, I don't personally have an opinion on this yet, but um, it's, I, think, I, think, I think the problem is, though, the, the primary care physicians have a really big role in places like rural areas, where, where, the access, where the access or knowledge of specialists aren't 
as available as they are in urban areas. Well, I think these different models of care, value-based and direct primary care, improve the quality of life and, and the health of the physician. And so long-term, I think it would drive more people into those fields because you still get mm-hmm. paid adequately, but you have a much lower workload of patients. And so you're able to spend more time with your patients, have more time for interacting and growing relationships and really treating your patients, which is what a lot of patients want and what what a lot of physicians want as well. So I think long-term, that model of care um, is going to drive more people into primary care and which will, like you said, help the primary care shortage so that more people get cared for by a good primary care physician. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of you're kind of getting into our next topic, um, which is what the healthcare system not just doesn't just affect the care that's being delivered to patients; it also affects the physician well-being, the physician workforce. Um, so, Caleb, if you could talk to, talk about how Medicare and Medicaid are affecting the physician now. Like, what are some studies that you've come across, and uh, I guess what what is it like from from what you've been able to read, like what is it like under under Medicare, Medicaid, and fee-for-service for physicians? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so I think Medicare and Medicaid directly impact a physician for a few different ways. Uh, number one, it's how the physician is getting paid. And so if you're receiving pay from the government, we know from studies that Medicare and Medicaid pay out less than private insurance companies. And so physicians who, one study I came across from JAMA uh, said that oftentimes in the cohort that they studied, prices in commercial markets with insurance companies are 200% to 300%, so two to three times higher for private insurance companies versus what the Medicare and Medicaid allowable amount for the fee-for-service that physicians are providing. And so when physicians have a clientele that's, or a group of patients that's predominantly Medicare and Medicaid dependent, they're going to receive less money. And this definitely affects where physicians want to practice and the group of physician, the group of patients that a physician will want to treat. Because obviously we all go into medicine because we want to help people and because we want to make a difference. But at the end of the day, we do have to make a living. We We end up with student loans and we end up with a ton of money we have to pay back and if you're getting two to three times more for treating a cohort of patients that has private insurance companies it puts you at a dilemma of do i work to make money and support my family or do i treat those who are underserved and those who are relying on these other forms of insurance and so i think the pay aspect is a huge part of how medicaid and medicare affect a physician in their in their daily life. Just to uh, touch on something you were bringing up, which is the uh, the loan crisis, because the cost of the U.S. medical education is going up as the cost of most U.S. education. Um, and I know that your loans are not insignificant. So, for the listeners who don't know, MD PhD programs are fully funded. So that means I'm fully funded, and I get a stipend to go to school. My medical school is paid for. With the, with the uh, expectation that I'll do a PhD, I'll publish work, I'll teach as a part of my PhD, 
um, and I'll do a little bit more work for the school, but you know, they cover these, these things for me. Um, I think one, one population of, of medical students that could and may fill, fill the, the PCP void are um, MD-PhD students because we, we don't come out with any loans and so we're not as financially inclined to um, you know, go into a specialty. I think where my inclination to go into a specialty like gastroenterology or dermatology comes from is mostly from my research. But at the same time, a lot of like the really great research routes and next steps for me in residency are actually internal medicine programs because they provide more scientific mentorship. Um, so, you know, if I end up going to one of those programs, I have no problem being a PCP. I still think, you know, I'd be making a decent living between uh, clinical and research responsibilities, but I don't know, just a thought that I had that, that these, there are, you know, the double docs, we can take over the, uh, the PCP role. And plus we don't have as much time as, as, uh, other doctors to be in the clinic. Yeah. And I think MD PhDs will, will definitely have some role, but I think they are definitely the minority of those people who are going into primary care. And so, Probably. so, so we need other ways to draw people to primary care because it, it is a great field, but it is underpaid in the current system we have. And I so, also just don't think there are enough MD PhDs to fill the need. I think right. we could, we could do a very small dent. Um, yeah. And it really depends on what each MD-PhD wants. Like a lot of them are moving towards uh, industry, too, because they realize that you, you can get paid a lot more than even a clinician if you go to industry. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think it all depends on the individual, but I, I agree with you. I think there needs to be more incentive to going into PCP. Yeah, definitely. So going back to our discussion about how Medicare and Medicaid affect physicians, so we talked about payout and how Medicare and Medicaid is going to adjust how physicians receive pay. Another thing I wanted to mention about this topic is control. And so while we talked about pay, Medicare and Medicaid also control what they determine is medically necessary. And so that results in a physician having to determine if they want to run a specific test or do a specific treatment on the patient. And then Medicare and Medicaid determine whether that was necessary and whether they're going to pay the physician for that. So mm-hmm. if a physician believes from his relationship with the patient and his background knowledge that a test is necessary, but Medicare and Medicaid don't agree with that, they can just decide not to compensate that physician for running that test or leave, if the physician decides they still want to charge a patient, leave the patient to pay for that test without covering it as well. So you're left with a dilemma of not only how the physician receives compensation, but also the government is able to have some level of control over the physician as well. So you lose control with with Medicare and Medicaid as well. So while Medicare and Medicaid have a lot of positives for the population that they're, they serve, there are a few things that definitely affect a physician in a more negative light. And so it leads to tough decisions for a physician when treating these populations, whether they want to to only think about doing what's best for their patients, which is what we all want to do, but we all need to make a living as well. And we also have many other factors that play into our lives and and our work that we pursue. And so in a perfect situation, 
a physician would be both financially inclined and ethically and morally inclined to do only what's best for a patient. But in this current situation, that's not always what we see. And so Medicare and Medicaid, while they can be phenomenal things for physicians and for patients, they do leave us with these ethical dilemmas that that we wanted to bring up and educate our listeners about today. The point that I was going to bring up um, along the lines of control is I thought this was an interesting argument that I read, and it was for one of our assignments that we had to do. Um, And we didn't really talk too much about it, but Medicare for All is a thing that has been uh, espoused by um, some of, I guess, some of the, the presidential candidates that were running this year. And a lot of people believe that Medicare for All is the answer to solving a lot of our healthcare issues. Um, but one thing, one point that I read that was against Medicare for All was the, um, if we had a Medicare for All system, the, the, drug, the drugs that you could prescribe as a physician would be limited to what Medicare would approve. And there's a, it's a small body of, of, of evidence, but it's, some of the studies are, are pretty well done that not all drugs are the same. So not all your 10A inhibitors are the same. Not all of your like statins are the same. And even between brands of the same parent compound, they're not really the same. They don't work like generics don't work the same as certain brand names. And sometimes patients also just don't feel as good as when they, when they take generics versus brand names. And it can lead to a lot of tough conversations with patients saying that because of the way that the health system is, they can't get the drugs that they want. Um, and if we're, you know, moving and if we're moving towards a, a Medicare for all value-based system where a lot of it is dependent on patient satisfaction, then you kind of are shooting yourself in the foot in that regard. Uh, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting, an interesting take on, on the system. It, it kind of changes the power dynamic that goes on between uh, the government, private health insurance, and biotech companies. Because right now, right now, biotech companies have a lot of control. They're because they they want to work with private insurance or government or whoever will give them the better deal. And um, a lot of that is determined by the patient populations that these different insurances cover. Um, so that's why sometimes you, you know, if you've ever been a patient and your, your doctor prescribed you a drug, that's why you get one brand and not the other sometimes. I don't know. Just, it wasn't something I thought about until I, I came to medical school and read this article from, uh, I think it was, I think it was a Harvard article, Harvard uh, Health Beat. I, I think it brings us to a good point that we wanted to bring up in this episode, which is Medicare for All. And there's a lot of politicians who are pushing for this idea in the near future. And so Peter and I just wanted to spend a few minutes introducing this idea and then also giving some positives and negatives for Medicare for All because it's going to be a huge part in how we look at healthcare in the future, especially if some of the presidential campaign people who are running for um, president in the next few years do receive the presidential vote. It's definitely going to play into medicine in a huge way. And so well, I would, I would even say the next few years. I think it was a huge, it was a huge, uh, a huge topic in the Democratic primaries. Yeah. For the the upcoming twenty twenty election. Yeah, definitely. And I think if Joe Biden does end up getting the presidential um, vote, it's definitely going to be something that is going to be talked about more. And I don't, I I don't know the specifics about his stance on it, but those in the uh, Democratic Party are very heavy towards this idea of expanding government-sponsored health care, whether it's going full Medicare for all 
or just expanding Medicare and Medicaid so that more people are covered under it. So Biden, Biden is not Medicare for all. And that was that was the big thing that came down. I think that was what him and Bernie were kind of like differing in one of the major things that they were differing in. Um, Biden, Biden, I think. I think he's, he's for Medicare expansion, but he wants to allow people who have like uh, company sponsored health insurance programs to keep that because those are those do those do have a place and that is a benefit um, in terms of taking the financial strain of Medicare of Medicare off the government. Yeah, definitely. And I think that brings us to a few positives and negatives of Medicare for All. And you mentioned some alternatives to going full Medicare for All, which I think is more of how the government-sponsored healthcare will start to progress in the future. Because one of the things I don't think can happen based on the U.S. government and, and how the country is, is a full shift away from all private insurers to only direct government sponsored healthcare. And I think if you think about how policy is made and how shifts in policy are done, I don't think we will go as a country straight from the system we have now to a complete Medicare for all. And so that's one of the points I wanted to bring up, not necessarily against ideas within Medicare for all, but just from a policy and politics perspective, it's going to be very hard to shift gears completely and, and totally destroy the insurance industry and, and everything that that is current in face of pushing only government-sponsored health care. And so that was the first idea I wanted to bring up. Another thing is the cost that it would incur on the government, which I think is, a, is a, definitely a negative of Medicare for All. And both Peter and I have looked into some research about how much it would cost for some classes that we've taken together. And you would have to increase taxes a, a enormous amount in order to pay for government-sponsored health care. And I know there's a lot of waste in the system right now from insurance industries to pharmaceutical com- companies and everything in between, but it would be a large shift in in the spending from all those industries directly on the government, which would then play out as the government having to increase taxes an enormous amount for us to pay for for healthcare, which I think is another negative of, of Medicare for all. I do wonder sometimes if a government system could be more efficient because you take away a lot of the waste in the system. A, lot, a hot topic nowadays is administrative waste because a, a large share of medical costs and, and the medical industry goes to administration. And so sometimes I do wonder if that could be cut out by switching to a Medicare for all system. Mm-hmm. But I look at some of the government sponsored industries uh, such as whether it's um, the post office or the current Medicare Medicaid system and or the VA and things like that. And I don't see the efficiency that I would I would want in a perfect system. And so I think while we don't know how efficient it could be and there could be some potential to cut out waste, I'm not sold quite yet on the government being more efficient than a free market and, and how it is currently. Yeah, I think it's a it's a tough thing. Um, I know that Marty McCarry wrote a good bit about this, and I should finish that book that you gave me. Um, you should, I have you should the, finish the price you pay. I got I got a good bit of it done. 
But a lot of it also talks about not just administrative waste, um, but just waste of, of resources. Like, you know, you want to make, it's, there's a fine balance of wanting to have enough resources for people, but also not having too many resources so that, you know, you're spending too much money, right? Like, where do, where do the leftover drugs X, Y, and Z go? Yeah. And I think that's definitely something that we will get into in further episodes is that one of the problems in medicine currently is over-testing and, mm-hmm. and leading to waste. Right. And so that's something that could definitely be improved on and, and is not part of anything we learn in medical school when to when a test won't be financially um, successful, when it's wasteful, and the different algorithms you can use to pick out when to run a test and when not to run a test. And so I think... Well, they do, they do teach us this. But financially? Um, I, think, I think what... Yeah, I, th- I think there's always like, the question, like, what's the next best test? Right? Because I guess I, I would argue that um, the, the most financially efficient test isn't the cheaper one. It's the one that gives you the, the better diagnosis or the better, like, more information towards the diagnosis. So I think it's a lot, I think it goes to, I don't know, I, I don't want to like shame anybody, but I think it goes to uh, like knowing, having a good differential, I think is very important because that will guide your next few tests. And if you don't have a good differential off the, off the bat, then, you know, you're going to want to run tests that might be unnecessary. And, and I think this kind of goes back to, to the healthcare system in that, because we're in a fee-for-service model, physicians don't have as much time or a desire to spend time with the patient to really get a thorough history. But it's like the first thing that they tell us is take a thorough history. That way you, you, you get, you understand like if they're exposed to any, any potential like environmental toxins that might change your differential or, or if they have any habits that might change your differential. Or if they like, you know, they forgot to mention this mole on the back of, of their like ass that was, sorry. <laughs> The mole on the back of their butt that was like, you know, it was raised and had irregular borders and it was discolored. So I think there's a lot of things that patients don't tell you if you're in a rush because they don't trust you. And I think it's something that that the patient, the physician, the physician patient interaction could be a whole other episode I think we talked about because there's a lot to it. But I think the health systems aspect of it is that physicians constantly feel rushed. They don't have as much time to spend with uh, patients, especially if you work in a big hospital, which is one of the benefits of being a private practice physician is you, you get to choose who you see and how much time you spend with patients. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. So, so I guess we wanted to close the episode off to, to recenter around this topic of Medicare and Medicaid and speak about why it matters for a healthcare leader. And so we're all about leadership here and we've broken down why each of these matters for a physician but we want to spend just a quick minute about why it would matter for a healthcare leader for the future. So, Peter, why don't you close us off today by spending a couple minutes about discussing why Medicare and Medicaid would matter for a, a healthcare leader? So, I think it's important to understand the current system with which you work. Um, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you can go. Like that, that's my perspective on it. And... 
depending on your position, you might be in charge of a hospital and it could affect the way that you run your hospital. You could be in charge of a practice and it'll affect the way you run your practice. You could be a researcher and it affects the way you run your clinical trials. Um, so if we're working to become leaders in medicine, it's important to understand how the money works, how, how it is, you know, the drugs get from the biotech company to the pharmacy, to the patient, and all the steps that it takes in between. Because if we really want to improve the efficiency and reduce the waste, we need to know the details and the details that we can change or should change. Um, and so by having this base understanding, we, we can start to educate ourselves and other medical students, residents, and physicians, hopefully, about how to better prepare ourselves for the future that's coming. Um, so at, at this moment, we're by no means experts, and hopefully by making these episodes for us and for you guys, we'll learn a little bit more, and maybe we'll come with some more impactful ideas in the future. Uh, and, you know, maybe you guys can also engage with us because you might know more than we do. And we would love to hear your thoughts about Medicare, Medicaid, the current state of affairs in the healthcare system. Um, so if you have anything, leave, leave uh, some comments down below and give us a like and subscribe if you uh, want to get more into to leadership with us. So thanks for tuning in for today. Hopefully you guys were able to learn something about Medicare and Medicaid we look forward to continuing to discuss these healthcare 101 topics with, with you guys in the future. Hopefully we're able to learn more and hopefully you guys are able to learn more as well about these different topics that we don't necessarily see in our medical curriculum, but that are going to be super influential once we start practicing in the medical field. Thanks for tuning in today. We will see you guys next time on Leading the Rounds.